0: from the sydney opera house welcome to it's a long story this is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas and my name is mark Fennell.
1: my name is janet mock i'm a writer an activist a feminist and you know tackling stigma through storytelling i think that growing up i probably wanted to be i think i articulated very early on that i wanted to be a writer
0: An HBO documentary, two best-selling memoirs, pop culture cover stories, beauty columns, speaking engagements, essays, social media, Janet Mock is doing it all and at the same time eager to expand beyond her personal experience and share the platform that she has built with others in her community who may not be as fortunate. Janet is arguably one of the most influential trans women working in media and is using every tool available to her to tell the stories that shift and challenge preconceived notions about what is possible for trans people. Janet, welcome to the show. Let's start with you as a kid. What were the books that you read, the ones that really meant something to you?
1: I loved Goosebumps as a series. I like to scare myself before I went to bed. I got, I think, my first library membership at like 12 with my mom. And we went and we would go and I would get a bunch of books. And I felt very adult, like, these are my books. This is my stacks. I'm taking all of these home. I'm going to return them late. And I remember sneaking, waiting to exhale. And I remember reading that book and just feeling like I like was, as my father would always say, I was in grown folks business. And there was just something about the world that Terry McMillan created around these black women who were having these, you know, romantic entanglements, but then also these friendships and deep conversations about self-worth and what they thought they were deserving of in the world. And I think that was probably the first time when I really saw a book go beyond just entertainment, but to really enable you to see yourself. And the first book that really meant everything to me, one that I defend to this day, one that I didn't even it's write, but I feel like I wrote, yeah, <laughs> it was Their Eyes Were Watching God by Neale Hurston. It's a book that follows black female protagonists named Janie Crawford. She is living in a town called Eatonville, which is the first um, black incorporated town in America. It's a fictional story, but it's written by Zorna Hurston, who also comes from a similar town. And so she writes a story that opens with Janie coming back from burying the dead in the muck um, in the Everglades. And she is wanting to tell someone her story and she tells her best friend her story and that's the entire kind of That's the the, 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 now, the mechanism through, its yeah, the story. through which, and so I kind of ripped that whole thing off <laughs> and wrote my first memoir, Redefining Realness, using that same kind of structure of a young woman in the present day, then telling her story to someone that she really cares about.
0: Redefining Realness, you talk quite openly about your childhood growing up in, in Hawaii. And one of the interesting things that kind of came out of it was Hawaii, you felt was quite welcoming or accepting of non-binary kids. Walk me through why you felt that way about your hometown, as it were.
1: I think that it's largely because of the Indigenous culture, the Kanaka Maoli there. Um, my mother's family, my grandmother's Indigenous to the islands, her entire line go all the way back to the beginning before there was even any kind of um, written record, before Captain Cook came there. I think there is also a space within the Native Hawaiian culture called mahu, which is an identity which speaks largely to um, children and people who were assigned male at birth who kind of took on gender roles that were really fluid. Mahuvahine, which loosely translate in our colonialistic Western sense of the term as trans woman. The first trans woman or mahuvahine that I met was in the seventh grade, which was my hula teacher, my dance teacher. She was paid by our middle school. Um, she was someone that was trans and transgressed, you know, the binary and had her own life and contributed. And no one really looked at her strangely. She was a part of our everyday as kids. And so I think growing up as I was coming to consciousness about my own identity as a trans girl, um, seeing her, it was like, oh, this is normal. I didn't have to go to the television or to books to read about myself, to see myself. I had people in my community and I think that growing up in Hawaii um, really enabled me to have this sense of like, oh, my gender being different with my gender, not really conforming to the ways in which people say or mandate that I should conform to as a young person um, was really affirming. It was affirming and it let me know that there's at least possibilities. And I wouldn't say that there was great acceptance, like everyone was okay with it, but I think that there was a level of at least tolerance around gender nonconformity.
0: That's really interesting because I think in a lot of Pacific Islander communities, there are elements that they, I guess break gender binaries. And I think in some more, they have. That's off, 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 yeah, yeah, I was going to say. You write in Redefining Realness about the importance of play and, you know, stealing clothes off a clothesline. Take me back to that moment. Were you cognizant of what you were playing with in terms of gender or was it just, it was just play at that point?
1: I think I was six years old. So for me, I don't think that I was thinking was about a lot of deeper, deeper levels. No. It was like my best friend, Marilyn, whom I always played truth or dare with, told me that after I chose a dare that I needed to go do something. And I really went and I snatched it down, put the dress on my body and ran across the um, parking lot to touch the trash bin and then came back. It really became something where I realized it was larger than my six-year-old bodies and my six-year-old brain's comprehension. When my grandmother and my sister saw me and they were laughing, Thing and my grandmother was angry. And I realized that this simple act of play that I thought was just play, that I thought was just exploring, that I thought was just truth or dare was something that was so much greater than myself. And I think it really taught me about the ways in which young people's expressions are heavily policed very early on. Young people are made to contain, adults want to contain young people's expressions. And that can be deeply traumatic, of course, but I think it can also really just limit one's ability to just do and to express and to figure out who they want to be. Um, I think it's hard to find out what your truth and what you really enjoy in the world. If people are constantly, the people charged with your care are constantly around telling you that you can't do that and you shouldn't do that. And if you do that, you're going to get smacked. Or if you do that, something's bad going to happen to you. And so for me, that moment was a mix of all of the, all of that stuff.
0: And that policing creates boundaries, I guess, and, and barriers between you and the people that are supposed to sort of love you unconditionally.
1: Completely. And it's also, you know, you think about, we often talk about toxic masculinity, and my husband's always telling me, he was like, you know, men are suffering too. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, but when he really says that, I do believe that he's, he's right. He's the absolutely <laughs> There is that sense of like, you think about all of us are constricted by these gender norms, by the binary. We're told that, you know, if you're a male at birth because of the appearance of your genitals that you cannot like a whole half of the things in the world that there is to enjoy you cannot like glitter you cannot like things that are artistic you cannot like um sitting in the corner and just having conversations with people you cannot you have to be active you have to be strong you have to which is like ridiculous because, it is
0: i mean if nothing else glitter is definitely mariah carey's best movie <laughs> um, i think we can all agree on that right <laughs> Um, I did want to ask you about a character that sort of emerges throughout your childhood, which is the character of Keisha, Who is
1: Keisha to you? Keisha was the first iteration of me being able to express openly and outwardly who I knew myself to be, specifically my gender identity. I think that for so long I was able to express my gender and my femininity in small, safe circles. So I was able to do it around my aunts. I was able to do it around my grandmother. And so when I was spending a spring break with her, when I think I was about 11 years old, this character of Keisha kind of emerged beyond just phone so I would have these, these phone conversations with um, one of my stepsisters like random list of like roster of cute boys that she was talking to and when she was over with them Keisha would come on the phone and start talking to them and so it was like I guess my original version of catfishing in a sense uh, yes, I was a trendsetter really um, and so yeah Keisha was my way my safe space of being able to kind of express my gender and be the girl that I couldn't be in my father's home and so I remember in that spring break like Keisha went outside for the first time and she was able to you know have a little crush on a boy and um, swim with him and go on the swings with him and like have this little like you know sixth grade very innocent romance that had nothing to do with any kind of like physical touching or anything like that it was just like this little thing of like ha- being around someone that admired me and thought I was cute and all that stuff so Keisha kind of was the pathway for me to first kind of express myself and who I really knew I was
0: In the process of writing Redefining Realness, you went through and you sort of did interviews with anybody or a number of people from your, your childhood. What was that process like? Because you obviously have a memory. We're talking about six, seven, eight, nine, 10, yeah. 11 years old. So your memory of these things is going to be quite different to the people around you. What surprised you in that process of talking to people from your own story?
1: What was interesting, you know, I really took on writing Green and Run as not just as my own sitting with myself, telling myself my own story, which I think there's great power in that and can be cathartic for some people. But I think the other layer was that was like to figure out what the truth was. And we know that there's many truths. We can all share a similar experience, whether it be a traumatic experience, a mundane experience, an everyday experience of being at home in the house, a happy experience. And so what I realized that I needed to do to really figure out what the truth was, was to have all these experiences that I had in my life, catalog them unfiltered with myself, and then to go out within my own family and use my family as sources because they were present during these years in my life when I was finding myself, when I was struggling with my body. Um, And they were also huge characters and players within that. And so I interviewed my father. I interviewed my mother. I interviewed my brother, Chad. I interviewed my best friend, Wendy. And their experiences and remembrances complicated what I thought was the truth and what I felt to be my truth, though I sided in my telling and redefining Realness with what I remembered, I contextualized it through those conversations that they had. One of the biggest surprises that I had was my father's framing of me as a very outspoken child. I don't remember rebutting my father when he scolded me about liking feminine things, when he scolded me about acting like a girl, when he policed my gender. He says that I spoke back, (laughs) that I said, no, I'm going to do this anyway. And so it's interesting. I think that you can have these similar experiences with someone who you're very intimate with and have takeaways that are different. And so I think that in my father's experience, I was this loud you know, very adamant child. In my experience, I thought that I was this quiet, meek child that was like this little victim. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Probably, yeah. I think that my father, you know, I think that he saw the way that I eventually was expressing my gender to be loud, to be adamant, to be consistent, to be rebutting against him. And so I think that he saw that as me being vocal. And so I think that the truth is somewhere there. But that was like one of the biggest surprises after he read the book that I thought was really interesting.
0: How's that moment when you hand over
1: the book and go, This is my life as I see it. There's Mm. bits of you in there. How how does that conversation go? Oh, I had no qualms about that. (laughs) I, I think I also came to it with the sense of, knowing my boundaries around who was going to be involved in the story. So it was people that I had direct relationships with my siblings, experiences and their struggles. I did not put in my book because I thought it was their story to tell, but I thought that my parents, I did not choose to be in this world. They brought me into this world. So it was completely fair game to discuss the ways in which they affected and shaped me in this world and in the way that I knew myself. And so I think that for them, there was a little, I think my mom was really nervous. Um, and so I, think I was the most sensitive to her. And when she read it, which I found astounding, was that she was like, you could have been harder on us. And I never saw it in this way of like, I could have been harder on my parents. I thought that I was fair. I thought that I wrote them with love and empathy. Um, and I think that what was really important to me and what I really cared about the most wasn't so much about all of the bad things that happened that I relayed or all of the sensitive matters that I relayed in the book, but it was more about ensuring that each person that I wrote about in my life that I told as full of a story that I could tell as a person that's outside of their own experience. And so when I talked about coming out to my mother at 13 years old and telling her that I was trans, that I also related to her being a 16 year old telling my grandmother that she was pregnant with my sister and seeing the ways in which there was parallels between the way that she reacted and my grandmother reacted. My mother was like, what can we do to take care of you? My grandmother to my mother when she was pregnant with my sister, Corey, was what can we do to take care of you? And so I think that she was deeply impacted and shaped in this world through the way the way in which being a young person telling her parent this thing that she's so afraid of, that she thinks is going to get her possibly pushed out of the home, that's not going to have her be accepted or be seen in a different light. And I had that same experience too. And so I think that being able to tell the fullness of every person's story is necessary. And so I think that my mom was a little surprised that I didn't just frame her as this antagonist in my story, but as someone that was her own person on her own journey, that's, you know, like all of our parents that are deeply flawed, like all of ourselves.
0: In June, you gave an interview with people where you talked about how vitally important it was to tell your story. There's a double sided sword there. You tell your story and then every interview you do at some point, somebody asks you trans one Oh one sort of questions. And I was going to ask you, what's the dumbest question you've ever been
1: asked? I think you, for me, I think also because I'm a journalist, Mm. And I'm someone that has often been trained and actually is more comfortable being the person asking the question. You're doing great on the other I side. Can, I oh, thank you. I can always, I can, we can always, swap if you yeah, want. I can always tell the line of questioning and the intention yeah, yeah, yeah. from the first framing. Um And so like that'll either get me to a point where I'm going to just be myself and be able to show up fully or have to put on this other hat of like performing and being strategic in a way of like trying to navigate someone else's or the questioner's limitations or their own ignorances or prejudices. And so I think that for me, probably the most irksome questions would be around body stuff or body modification or healthcare procedures or surgeries or all these things because I think that for so long trans bodies have been framed in largely the context of what we've done to our bodies and how that curiosity of cis people's imaginings of us and the dramatic nature and the sensational nature of how our bodies have transformed um, has been the primary story that's been told and so I feel like it's so old and all we do it's an old trope and you just have new bodies and new experiences that are there telling kind of the similar and the same stories. And so I always think too, how is that even relevant to a cis person's life? I see if it's just like a trans podcast and it was about sharing medical journeys so that other trans young trans people can know how to navigate, you know, the medical industrial complex or all of this other stuff, then great. But then other than that, I don't, I don't know how it's relevant beyond just satiating someone's um, curiosity about trans bodies.
0: When those questions come up, is there like a little switch in the back of your head that goes, oh, kill me now?
1: No, because I think that for me, I think the The interesting part is that I also see a lot of what I do is just work right and so the trans 101 work becomes a part of that yeah. and so it's I think the Difficult thing when it just comes for me as an individual is being able to answer those questions without making someone feel that they've asked a dumb question. Because <laughs> that's a special they, skill, yeah. by the way. And <laughs> Not so, a lot of people have that skill. <laughs> and so it's like it's a lot of. And so at the end of it, I'm usually like just like really tired and really exhausted because I've had to like. It almost feels as if I'm going into like some like intellectual battle in some sense to come off as someone that's open and kind and entertaining. So that the person also listening on the other end, that's not the interviewer, but is the audience that they feel as if they're like, okay, I can understand this experience or I've left knowing these new things and ways in which to challenge the norms of the world that I've learned or something.
0: So the transition from Hawaii to New York, you went over to New York to study journalism? What was the biggest learning curve about going from Hawaii to New York for you?
1: I think the largest would be PACE. Hawaii is very island culture. It's very slow. It's, you know, we take our time. We let people cut in front of us in the line. We let people cut in front of us on the freeway. You know, we make room for everyone. There's shakas. There's aloha spirit, Um, which is true, which is really beautiful about being there. But I think that when you're a young person that's super ambitious and wants to get off of a small island, you want and crave something more. You want and crave a faster pace. And I think New York is largely a city for young, hungry people. How old were you when you went there? I was 22. So I went right after undergrad. I went straight to grad school at New York University to study journalism. And yeah, that was a pace. And I thrived on that pace. I wanted so much. I wanted to be, at the time, I wanted to be a features editor at a women's fashion magazine. That's what I wanted to do. And so I went into the magazine writing concentration at NYU. I got internships at you know, WWD, Women's Wear Daily, Playboy, InStyle magazine. And then that led to my first job at People magazine. And so I thrive on that frenetic pace. And I think I craved that for so long as someone who felt largely trapped by my small town that happened to be an island. And it was also really great too, to leave that space and go somewhere where I didn't have to be out as being trans, you know, from 12 years old all the way through 21, nine years of my life. I was very open. My transness led the way for me for every single space that I went into in Hawaii. And so it was nice to go somewhere and be 22 to 22 years old and not have that lead the way for me and to see what it felt like to be normal in some really basic sense. The work you did at People, what was it that really spoke to you? What was it about it that you really loved? Well, I was a pop culture fan. So being someone who loved movies, who loved music, who loved entertainment and television, it was the perfect place for me to be. The first subscription that I got to a magazine was teen people. You know, like that magazine was created for me and my generation. And so to be able to work somewhere at a, at a brand like that, which was the number one and still is the number one magazine in America was a great training ground for me. But it was also, it was like in Devil Wars Prada, you know, where it's like a thousand girls, a million girls would kill for this job like I was one <laughs> of a million that made it and so number one I felt super special I felt like the exceptional person that, the sectionally young person that made it um, and so it was really fulfilling in that sense um, it was really cool to go to events and to report at events to meet some of my idols and to interview them to have conversations with them to learn the craft of journalism through this really wacky world of celebrity and entertainment journalism which is which a, is a special, whole another yeah. machine because it's also so choreographed And it's also so hard to get something real out of someone that has been doing this for decades and is tired of talking about themselves, but is contractually obligated to talk to you because of the movie that they have out or the album that they have coming out. And so it's a you learn a lot through doing that. And so for me, it was also incredibly fulfilling on a survival level to be able to make a living, to support myself, to be comfortable, um, and to also on another layer, not have to talk about myself. Mm. So being able to hide behind the Stories of very famous people was a comfortable space for me. And so, after five years of being there and doing that, I was kind of bored. Yeah. And I think that that's what led to this next chapter in my life that I'm currently in.
0: You spend a big chunky time talking to famous people in, you know, tiny blocks as these things happen, and you see how they interact and you see how they deal with talking about themselves. Did you learn anything from that process of seeing how those people deal with? addressing themselves I guess
1: I think I learned a lot about boundaries oh, okay. it was something that when I was a journalist I could not stand about yeah. famous people was that they had these things that are really set up like if they say that something's going to start at 10am that it starts at 10am and then their publicist going to come in at 5 minutes and be like your 15 minutes is up when I was a journalist I could not stand that but now I understand it because when you think about it you are constantly talking about and turning out content and trying to make it fresh coming out of your mouth because you only have one personal experience or for them you have like one project or movie that you're promoting there's only so many sound bites you can have and you can give and so reserving your energy and reserving your time and creating those boundaries are necessary for your survival um and so for me I think about that so often with like having to go to an event and give a talk for 40 minutes and then to do audience Q&A for 20 minutes and then to go at a book signing line and you don't know if it's going to be a half hour line or if it's going to be a two hour line and so knowing what are the boundaries that you're willing to give for yourself and so setting those up just enables me to show up I think fully for that hour and a half if I know that that's what the time limit is because after an hour and a half I'm done. My voice is gone. My voice is gone from last night because the line was an hour and a half. You're doing great you know? by the way. And so it's like well my voice usually sounds so much better than this. But yeah, so I think that boundaries was something that I really learned. Mm-hmm. In the moment, I didn't like it because it wasn't giving me what I needed as a journalist. Yes. But as a person that's now on the other end of it, boundaries, I think, are, are some of the greatest things that any of us can set up for ourselves.
0: In 2011, Marie Claire... Put out an article called "Born a Male," which seems to have been a, I guess, a turning point in people's understanding on, and and awareness of you. How did that article come about?
1: I think it was called "I Was Born a Boy," okay. and I think the print version said something the secret, something crazy like the secret I never knew I would tell. I think that what was interesting for me was that it was I was writing, I was just starting to begin writing my memoir Fighting realness um, at the time, and I was working at People Magazine and. And dear friend of mine told me that a friend of hers she had told my story to, you know, in confidence. Was in confidence was a journalist who was interested in And I mean anything in confidence. (laughs) don't. So she told my story to a journalist who then wanted to tell my story. Um, That's where all stories come from. Yeah, and as a writer I felt really um, conflicted about that. Because I was just like, I can tell my own story. I don't need to tell a journalist my story. And so I thought it would be a profile of me, and then it turned into an as-told-to piece, which is then written in a way that it's told in my voice in first person. I was da 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 da, da, right? Instead of being Janet Mock, a da da da. da, Those things are so weird, though. And so they're strange, and they don't they don't they never feel authentic because they're not coming from the source. Um, If you had
0: wanted to write that, you would have framed it differently. I would would have framed it completely. Yeah, Yeah, I would have
1: named it differently, and I think also too you know, the headlines weren't, I didn't write the headlines, of course, an editor writes those headlines. And so it created a lot of complications around how we address and let trans people and therefore people who are just subjects of pieces to self-identify and use the language that they would use to describe themselves. For my generation specifically, born a boy was better than what they used to throw on trans women, which was born a man, which none of us are. No one's born a man. No, no No. one's born a man. You become a man, right? If you were to born be. an actual man, that's like, a story. I mean, well, that's Benjamin Button, right? <laughs> isn't
0: that? I, would, I would be very interested in telling that story.
1: And then, even the next layer of that, I think that the generation that I'm a part of then challenged born a boy, which was none of us are born a boy. And I think in one of the interviews I did, which went everywhere, which I questioned someone, I said, actually, I was born a baby. I was born a baby who, because of the way that my body appeared and my genitals appeared, a doctor said that I was a boy, and therefore I had to follow these certain rules for the rest of my life from just two options. And now we know with this current generation coming up that there's not just two options, that the gender binary is not fixed in that way, that it's not even a spectrum. It's so much more than that because it doesn't go across a clear cut line. It's more of like a kaleidoscope where there's so many different variations and and colors and expressions and that there's gender non-binary people and gender fluid people and trans women and trans men and trans women who choose not to have certain procedures in trans men who choose not to have certain procedures and that there's no one way to be a trans person. Um and so it's interesting to be and exciting to be a part of this conversation at this particular time around that stuff. And so I think that the difficult part for me as someone who is a media professional, is having these conversations with colleagues around challenging the ways in which we tell these stories and also ensuring that I, as someone that is prominent in America, at least, in telling these stories, that I Deepen the bench for other trans people to come into this space, other women of colour to come into this space to tell their stories and to be the people that are the journalists so that we have more sensitive and knowledgeable representation of us throughout the media.
0: It's interesting because I feel like there's sort of like a two-speed economy here where within people in the media construct and with people that uh, have interactions with people who are gender non-binary and trans, the conversation is is developing quite fast, but there's a whole bunch of people at home, small towns, mums and dads, for whom the very concept is still a challenging one. And I guess I, I guess I have some sympathy for people that ask dumb questions in this context where trying to bring everybody along for the ride and trying to bring people along is, I guess you have to accommodate for everybody. And I, I, I wondered your lessons of having those first conversations with your, your dad, your your grandmother, do you take lessons from those first interactions in terms of how to bring the public along with you in terms of how, uh, how to bring them along on, on that journey?
1: I think so. I think that, you know, one of the first... or one of the common questions I'm asked from, I do a lot of college talks at universities and a lot of young people ask me, how do you go home with this heightened consciousness and this new academic language and this sensitivity around social justice issues? And you go home to your small town, you know, for Thanksgiving or for Christmas and you have to have these complicated conversations with people in your life who don't have that same awareness around these issues, um, with your problematic uncle who's misogynist
0: and your- Problematic (laughs) uncle is like an arc, like it's like a spinoff TV show tonight on CBS, problematic uncle.
1: (laughs) You know, how do you have those conversations with the people that you came from, you know, and you know, how do you strip away the jargon, the new language that you have acquired and learned to activate in, um, and operate in. And how do you go and learn to speak it plain? You know, I learned so much from my grandmothers specifically about feminism, but they never used the word feminism. I learned about intersectional feminism. They never used the term intersectional. And so it's, it's a challenge for me to speak at, as I was trained as a journalist, you write in a seventh grade level so that everyone can have accessible language to, to be able to understand these complicated concepts. And so being a trans person, a woman and a person of color, I understand then that because of my intersectional identities that I have to write at a fourth grade level and oftentimes communicate at a fourth grade level and speak slowly, so that people can digest these really complicated, nuanced, multi multilayered um, lived experiences and realities of myself and then therefore my community. And so for me, it's the work that I'm charged to do. Um, and so I try to tell stories that offer people language. And I know specifically with Redefining Realness, a lot of people were kind of like irritated that I had a lot of language in there, that I had a lot of like explanatory commas. Literally in my book, I think there's like transgender comma an umbrella term that, you know, describes people who da 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 Whereas if a trans person's reading that book, they're like, I don't need that definition. But it helps those people in small towns or it helps people who don't have, who are the uninitiated to be able to come along on this journey and to learn my story and therefore learn parts of my community stories. But I also feel because I've already done that work in a book form and that there's also other books out there. And there's also this thing called Google that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if if, if you're serious, Curious and you're seriously interested in learning about someone unlike you, that it's, you know, fingertips away to learn that stuff.
0: That's really interesting. I guess if somebody's listening to this now and they are going to go have that conversation with problematic uncle what would your advice to somebody listening to this now who who wants to have a better kind of conversation who wants to bring along people around them that aren't necessarily au fait with the terminology that are still challenged by it as a concept what would be your advice to that person
1: i think it always helps to start with your own experience and story specifically since you're in an intimate space like it seems like that's a family situation right so i would say start from your own experience you know i think that it always helps people to digest information through an narrative. I think that people's personal stories can be great tools to enable them to educate and bring people along. I think stripping away language sometimes is necessary. I think Bell Hooks said it best that language is a place of struggle. And so using terminology, oftentimes like intersectional Mm -hmm. terminology, like cisgender terminology, like, you know, even the gender binary can be something that's too vast and too big and can have people, oftentimes lose a certain audience that yeah, you're trying to get. You can gain. put people on the back
0: foot if, if they Yeah, because they feel it, as if yeah. they,
1: they're not equipped to have this conversation.
0: And it's disempowering in a way because yeah, they it, don't feel like they, they yeah. can engage in that conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that it just deeply depends on the audiences that you're invested in talking to. And so sometimes if I'm speaking at a university or a college, they should know this terminology. And so I'm going to use this terminology and I'm not going to explain the terminology to them. They're in a place of learning. They should know this stuff. Um, whereas if I'm talking to a small parents group of trans youth. I'm going to use different terminology to speak to them so that I can actually build bridges for their own understanding. And so it just depends on the space that I that I think I'm specifically in when I'm willing to do that one-on-one work and when I'm not.
0: And it's really interesting uh, with Surpassing Certainty, at that point you are assuming that you have a level of, of understanding mm. with, with the narrative. And is that liberating for you as a writer to be able to go, oh, we've done the basics, let's move on?
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's what made writing Surpassing Certainty um, a much more enjoyable experience for me as a writer because I didn't feel as if I needed to educate Mm -hmm. an audience. I felt that I needed to tell a story to an audience, but I didn't need to take on that burden of giving them language. Um, I needed to give them thoughts and experience and and ideas um, through my own personal experiences. Yeah, so it it was incredibly liberating for me as a writer to just write a personal memoir. My first memoir was just as deeply personal but there was that next layer of having to do that trans 101 work and i also think that a lot of and it's not surprising to me that a lot of trans people specifically trans readers enjoyed this book differently yeah because they felt as if they weren't having to kind of skip over passages that they already knew about they could just really enjoy it as a as a narrative
0: In January, you stood up on stage at the Women's March. What was going through your head as you looked out at all of these people? What kind of floated through your mind at that moment? Because I imagine that was a fairly surreal. You you know, you have broadcast in front of cameras, you've written, but that scale of audiences is, is in a special zone.
1: Yeah, I think only Beyonce has that kind <laughs> of level of audience. Yeah. And so I think that one of my first things was like, I don't know how Beyonce does this. no. I think I literally started this speech with, I am here, and that was not written. And it was just because I just had to, I had to really think about the fact that all of my life experiences, all of the things that I went through, all the things that I've learned have brought me to this space and has brought us all here to this space. I think there was mass disappointment um, that specifically Americans were going through from, you know, election night in November to seeing just the day before Donald Trump be inaugurated and to see, you know um the Obamas, specifically for me as a Black American, to see them leave. I was deeply saddened. And so I felt great joy seeing this mass of people. Um I wish that the masses of people were a lot more diverse. Yeah. It was a lot of white folk. Um And I think that that really speaks in America about our racial divide and how I think that people of color were not surprised by the rise of Trump. I mean... Watching it from an outsider's point yeah, of view. Yeah, what was we it like watching it
0: as an outsider? Uh, everybody, I mean, look, everybody just expected Hillary to win because that's mm, what mm. smart analysts were talking heads on TV told us. Mm, and mm. there
1: wasn't a They I told know, us the same too. Yeah, cool. All
0: right. We've got some <laughs> issues with those guys. Uh, you still got some friends at MS Embassy, right? You can. <laughs> look, I, I, Leah, from an outsider's standpoint, it was very confusing because you felt like you were listening to expert after expert after expert telling you that it was impossible. I'm really curious to hear now in the aftermath, points of view from people of color who felt like they weren't surprised. And I'm I'm curious to understand what that experience is like.
1: So we don't repeat it? Yeah, I I don't know if me saying that experience is going to help us not repeat it. I think that what Trump did was that he rallied masses of people who were tired of having to say things the right way, who were tired of having to be careful about their language, who had... Years and years and generations and generations of white supremacist ideals embedded within them and in their communities, but had learned to operate in ways that enable them to not be called out on their stuff. And so Trump rallied them and said the first people he attacked were Mexicans. Calling them rapists, right? And so, like, just seeing that that's where it really started was that it unleashed stuff that has always been there in American politics, that has always been there in American, in the American legal system, that has always been there in the culture, but has learned to be more polite. Instead, it turned to laws that change. It turned to in mass incarceration. It turned to drug laws. It turned to, you know, redlining and housing and all of these things, right? And so what it did was that I think the great gift that Trump did give <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) was that this stuff came out, so now we can see it. And so now that for people of color, for black Americans, we can say that This shit has always been here. And so we were not shocked and surprised because we experienced it every single day in our families, right? And so for us, I think that we've always been disappointed by systems. We've always been disappointed by our elected officials. And so to have a lot of white folk come and be like, I'm finally disappointed. It was like, great, now do something.
0: Yeah, it's funny that idea of him as like this like personification of structural issues that have been permeating for years and years and years. It's sort of like suddenly you can... You can personify it in, in the figure of, of Trump. Is that too simplistic a reading of it?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I- For me, he just brought all that stuff out. And so it's there. And so like, that's his base. That's who's always going to show up. They're not going to care about, you know, da, da, da. And, you know, American politics are very binary in that sense of like, it's like either you're a liberal or you're, you know, you're not. And so like, it's just, it's no one's listening to each other in that sense. And I think that what was great about standing on that stage at the Women's March was that I was really excited to see that people were moved. People who often were first time activists were finally activated, were finally leaving their safe spaces and coming to a space where they saw masses of people feeling moved. And so my job as someone who had five minutes on stage was to address this audience and give them language and to ensure that as they're coming here under the umbrella term of women, that they realize that that term needs to be unpacked and that we're also talking about anyone that's oppressed by gender. Um, We're talking about undocumented folk. We're talking about disabled women. We're talking about trans and gender nonconforming women. We're talking about queer women. We're talking about sex workers' rights. We're talking about all of these things. And so as you have this thing of like these little pussy hats, which are really cute and photogenic, that we realize that some women don't have pussies and that some women don't want to just be defined by the fact that they may not have them or that by their genitals and all these different things. And that when we talk about reproductive rights, that we're inclusive of of people's whose bodies have been taken away from them. by medical institutions very early on in their lives, like intersex people. Um, and so my job was to complicate that narrative and to bring all of these first time activists, millions of them along. And so that was the work that I was charged to do. And I left and went home right after that speech because I was exhausted. It was a lot to take in. It was an amazing demonstration. I'm really proud of my generation for orchestrating that. It's, it's amazing to be a part of that.
0: Of the women that voted in the US election, 53% of white women Voted for Trump.
1: When you hear that statistic, what goes through your head? That white supremacy is real and that some people, specifically white women, have the safety of their whiteness to take care of them. And that's what they went toward. They weren't thinking about their gender because they knew that white men would protect them, that white supremacy would protect them. And that's what I thought. And so I wasn't surprised. For people outside of America, when we talk about white supremacy and
0: and how it filters through structural issues, so the legal system, drug laws, and a bunch of other things, can you unpack that for an audience that perhaps aren't familiar and don't have a lived experience of it, who are coming at it from the outside?
1: I simply see it as a blanket. It protects certain people and prioritizes and um, offers warmth to certain bodies over a mass majority of others. And so a white person's body is protected by systems that black folks' body, people of color, indigenous bodies, disabled bodies are not protected in that same way. That's a simple way that I can explain it.
0: Where to now? So particularly with your work with activism, with your writing, what's the next frontier for you in terms of changing minds and, and elevating people's understanding of the world?
1: I've always loved pop culture and entertainment. Um, I think continuing to do my work with my podcast Never Before which is just a conversation series with really accomplished people in popular culture um, having those conversations and then also moving behind the scenes in narrative. I'm working on a television series right now. I can't announce what it is but I'm oh, working as a on. writer I'm working as a writer at, at a Andrew's television on show <laughs> um, and so it's really an enjoyable new experience for me to tell stories in that format about my community, about trans folk a show that's going to have you know five trans leads and it's going to be on a huge network and it's really exciting um and so for me it's about building a different kind of power through storytelling and to do it on so many different platforms and so i hope to challenge as always been which is to challenge you know be a feminist that challenges um stigma and combat stigma and combats people's um ignorance through stories janet you're an absolute pleasure to talk to you. i could do this all day long really appreciate your time thanks for having me
0: all right it's a long story is recorded at the sydney opera house this season features guests from the antidote program and it was hosted by me mark Fennell. there you go uh it's produced and edited by cara jensen mckinnon our theme music is by rishikesh Hiraway, music mix by evan williams we were recorded by josh craig mastered by Callum jensen mckinnon and our executive producer is danielle harvey and we will catch you on the next episode of it's a long story goodbye